Let's pray. Father, just would ask in these few moments that we have together as we seek to hear your voice and look at your word that you would help us really know you better and know ourselves and and understand who you are and what you've called us to and and what it means to live with you present in our life. I pray, Spirit of God, come open my mouth and the ears of, of all of us that we might hear from you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, how many, I'm going to make this a little interactive to begin with. How many remember using a typewriter? Raise your hand. Okay, good, good. Um, and you remember whiteout, and you remember maybe replacing typewriter ribbons and things like that, correct? How, how many actually remember using a mimeograph? Raise your hand. And we get a little slimmer there. You remember how many get blue on your fingers, and, and, and any remember doing this to copy? Yeah, yeah, you would. You, how many remember putting film in a camera? Okay, there's a good share of you who uh, still remember doing that. And, and how many of you remember that? sense of shock and, and awe when you opened the camera and you saw there was film in there. Oh, it's been overexposed again. How many remember rotary dial phones and used them? Raise your hand. Okay. Um, how many of you actually had carried a pager? Raise your hand. Okay. How many still carry a pager? <laughs> there's still someone. Yeah, they, there's, there's those holdouts. Um, how many of you used a Rolex? Raise your hand. A Rolodex? Raise your hand. Okay, great. Um, Dee in our office, who is my administrative assistant, still has her little Rolodex there. I mean, she uses a computer, but that's the trusty device. If I got rid of that, we would have um, a real problem. She was telling me the other day how to use it, and I'm just going, not that difficult. But anyway, anybody ever been a part of a party line? You remember what even a party line is? You listen for the ring and, and then you get to listen to all your neighbors, right? How many have on your shelf the World Book Encyclopedias or the Encyclopedia Britannica? Raise your hand. Okay, why do you do that? You just, you just use the Internet. How about tape recording machines? Think about it. Reel to reel. Some of you remember that where you'd put those on, or 8-tracks, or cassettes, or VCRs. The list is endless. I could go on and on. From typewriters, to whiteout, to mimeographs, to VCRs, to phones with cords, tape recording machines, and all kinds of other telecommunication systems and devices are increasingly becoming a thing of the past. And I would bet in the next 20 to 30 years, the next generation Almost every one of these things I've talked about will be for the young generation. They'll be scratching their head going, what? A what? A party line? Whiteout? You see, with computer technology and the telecommunications innovations, all kinds of devices and practices are just becoming footnotes in history. It is revolutionary. I don't think we understood how radical it was when people stood some 20, 30, 40 years ago and said, you know what? Computers are going to change the way we live. Or at a point, I remember hearing about the Internet and the whole idea that the Internet would just change things beyond what you could imagine. Because when the new comes, the old becomes obsolete. 
That's what I want you to think about in kind of just a thought underneath all that we talk about is that when the new comes, the old becomes obsolete. When you begin to read about the life and ministry of Jesus himself, when he stepped on this earth and began his public ministry, and he began to teach and he began to preach and he began to share all these things about the kingdom and the kingdom is at hand. It is now coming. It was a radical message and they didn't quite understand it. It was like saying just computers, you know, it's going to change the world. We'd hear internet's going to change the world. Jesus was saying what I have come to share with you and what I have actually come to do, my work on the cross, the resurrection that will occur, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is going to radically change the way that God interacts with all mankind in such a way that it will never be what you ever could have imagined and you'll never be able to hold on to those things that you once had because they become obsolete. And so this morning, I want us to look at Matthew 23, verse 33, which we were kind of at last week near the end of it and going into chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And it's critical that we study this passage of Scripture and understand it within the context. And and I'm going to ask you to hang with me because the first part of this is going to be more teaching. And, And you need to get some of this teaching under your belt so that we can move into what I would call what I really enjoy doing is preaching and talking about the implications of what this means. But the very first principle, when we look at chapter 23, verses 33 through verse 39, is that this idea that Jesus is standing before them and he's saying, you'll become as obsolete as the old stuff you hang on to. He's looking at a whole bunch of religious leaders and he's looking at these scribes and these Pharisees and he's saying, if if you're going to hold on to this old stuff, as obsolete and worthless as that becomes, so also will your life in the hands of God. And not only that, if you stand, he basically says this, if you reject me and my ministry and the work and you fail to hear the Spirit and open your heart to the Spirit, you as well will be rejected. It's not only that you hold on to this old stuff, you become useless, but not... Just that, if you do not hear and understand the new that's coming and move into it, you will not be any part of it. In fact, we look at that last week and there were seven woes that Jesus starts to call out. And these woes are really to be like an AED machine. You know, those heart defibrillators that you would put these pads on a person's heart. And he was using each of the woe. And every time he said the woe, it was to shock the heart of the people into the rhythm and way of God. It was his hope that it would shock their heart to life, that they would come to life and begin to hear. And I do think for some of them, because you go into the book of Acts after Jesus is raised from the dead and the church is being birthed, you'll see there were all kinds of priests and there were Pharisees that actually came to Christ. Those messages didn't just land on deaf ears. There were some who were just beginning to open it. Their ears to hear. And, and you may be in a situation like that, that, you know, it was years ago that God said something and he hit your heart. And now in time, you're beginning to hear it more and you're beginning to move into it. And some of you may in this message today, God may come to you and say, you've got to stop. If you keep holding on to the old, you'll never enter the new. And it'll be like that, that machine on your heart and God trying to break open for you to understand what the work of Jesus has accomplished for you through his cross and resurrection. And so he looks at him and he says, here in these verses, verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers. He doesn't, I just, Jesus is, man, is he gutsy. I just, God, I mean, you're standing before the people who hold the power of the whole nation and you're calling them snakes and vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? He's had no problem saying there's a hell and and you will be condemned to it if you don't turn. 
Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers, some of them you will kill and crucify. Now he's talking like an Old Testament prophet who's speaking forth as if God was speaking through him because God was in him. He was God. And as he says this, he's saying it and he says, some of them you will kill and, and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the beginning, the righteous Abel, Adam and Eve and their son Abel, all the way to the last prophet, Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar of all places in the house of God, in the presence of God, the prophet of God, you slayed. And, and you know what? He's basically saying, and you stand in opposition to God, you stand high-handed and say, God, I don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want. And you refuse Him. And the, the thing is, when you refuse the Spirit of God when He's speaking to you, and in time, your heart becomes hardened and callous to it, He says the high-handed person will come under the condemnation of God. And He's saying that here. And He makes this point, and it's important you understand this verse. Verse 36, truly, I tell you, this will come on this generation. You need to understand as we move from chapter 23 to chapter 24, because a lot of people get into chapter 24, which is all about the end times, and, and they begin to look for signs of the times. They take the newspaper and they, they try and match everything. You need to understand the context of what he's talking about. He's talking to people in that day, and he's saying to them, truly, I tell you, this judgment... All this will come on this generation. That's a pretty strong word. And then he says it in chapter 24, verse 34. You've got to keep this in mind. He says this in chapter 23. He's standing in chapter 23. He's the last message he is giving in the courts of the old, in, in the temple. He's in the courtyard where, he, where they would often a person, a prophet would teach or a rabbi would teach. He's, he's teaching. It's his last message to the people and to the religious um, leaders, Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law. He's standing there and he says, on this generation, this will all come. He walks out of the temple. He goes to the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And if you look at Matthew 24, after he gives the teaching specifically to his disciples, he ends in verse 34 as he answers the question about the temple and the signs of his coming at the end of the age. Jesus once again says, I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. You have to keep this in mind. Every good scholar will tell you that you need to first understand the context of who the message is being spoken to and the times in which it is being spoken. That is the first thing you do is understand and interpret what that means in that generation so that you can take principles and in that sense apply them in the future. Now, I'm not in any way saying that there isn't future implications to this passage, but you know what? If you run right away to a paper and you run away and look at contemporary events and you try and match these together, and I'm not... You can read all kinds of books on this. I want to tell you, the first thing we need to do is stop and listen and say, what is Jesus saying to the people in that day? And he says this in verse 34 of chapter 24. I tell you the truth. When he says these things, he says, I mean this. Go to the bank because you can take out this as being Accurate, it will happen. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And so what is it that's going to happen? We forget so quickly that what Jesus is doing in this time is he is... He, there's an age that's coming to an end and a new age is beginning as he 
brings the kingdom of God and his work on the cross and the resurrection and the power of the spirit that comes at the outpouring of Pentecost and the birth of the church was this cataclysmic, cosmic, seismic shift that was happening spiritually. That would have implications for you and me and had implications for them. And Jesus is saying, when the new comes and you refuse his work and all that is new with it, you will be left behind. When the new comes and you reject his spirit, you stand condemned by your unbelief. This generation will experience the judgment that is coming as a result of this rejection. Because of the seismic shift, our Father God in his grace, this is what's incredible about God and his grace. This, this seismic shift is so huge. It's so difficult for people to grasp that he allows a whole generation to actually go through it before he actually does anything. At 33 A.D., Jesus dies. In 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed. Do you know what? It, it, as I went through this exercise and asked you how many remember about typewriters, how many remember about mimeographs, how many remember this, you raise your hands. I bet you in about a few years there won't be hardly any who will be raising their hand. In a sense, that's what Jesus was saying. You're going to all be a part. You're going to know this, and at a certain point it's going to change because it has to change. He goes on in Matthew 23, verse 37 to 39, and pay particular attention to verse 38. Now, you need to hear this. Stay with me. And just this is some teaching. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It, it, he's, his heart is full of compassion and love. It's like, you know, when you really love someone, you sometimes will say their name twice. Like, like for a daughter, you go, oh, Ashley, Ashley. Or for a son, oh, Jonathan, a Jonathan. In Jerusalem, he sees this and personalizes it in this way. The people of this city, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you weren't willing. Look! He now points. He stand, in the middle of his message, he points. He says, behold, look, I want you to look at the temple. It's desolate. It's a ghost town. God doesn't live there anymore. Here is God in flesh standing before them and saying, I'm not in that little box. I'm not in the house. I'm standing here in your presence. And in a moment, you're going to find it's completely empty and it will be useless to you. For I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which could mean when he resurrects, it could also mean that when he comes again in the second coming. See, God has moved out. The temple becomes a ghost town. And I don't think these words fell on their ears and they were deaf to them. I think they really understood what Jesus was saying. He was much like the, the prophets of old. Ezekiel, at one point, when he was predicting the judgment to come and Babylon was going to destroy Jerusalem, the city, and also its temple, he, the whole, if you read through the book of Ezekiel, it's a very interesting study. At a certain point, Ezekiel says the glory of God, the Shekinah, is, there's this Ichabod. God is going to leave it. He's going to leave the city. And eventually he's going to leave the temple courts and eventually the holy place. And he keeps narrowing it down. Eventually the holy of holies, the very room that he dwells, God's leaving because in that leaving you can know that there's judgment coming because God's not sticking around for that. And they weren't deaf to it. And it didn't fall on deaf ears, but I think only on unrepentant ears. And so he kind of warns us in a sense because God never abandons his redemptive work. He never gives up on his work. He just moves it to those who are willing to follow. 
You know that you can go on a lot of churches and God doesn't close doors of churches because he often in a lot of churches, they can get older and they can save money and they can still keep things going. But it doesn't mean that God's present there in his fullness. It doesn't mean that God's mark is upon that place. It doesn't mean they're experiencing the fruits of ministry. What happens often is God doesn't close doors. He just moves ministry. And as we heard in this testimony, and I loved what Michelle said, she said, you know, it's kind of funny. I look at all these little girls, these little poor kind of orphan girls and one who looks kind of like Pigpen. I wouldn't have picked her, but God did. And why does God do that? Because blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are those who seek after righteousness. Their hearts have got more than anything in this life. I want your presence. I want the stamp of approval of your life on my life. God, I want you to use me. I don't understand this in my poverty, in my brokenness. But so often what happens in churches and what happens with people who become religious is we get so caught up in our religion and our traditions and our ways and we think God's in those and he comes at times. He says, you know what? I don't live in those things. (laughs) It's not where I reside. And in pride, it's tough to be able to understand that because, you know, we think we're doing everything right and we think we're crossing the T's and dotting the I's and spiritually we're legalistically following this. And Jesus stands before these people and he says, look, your house. And he says this, it's empty. And he begins to walk out. God is walking out of The temple courts leaving it. What he's saying is literally coming true as he walks through the gates. And so the second principle. It's really important to understand. If you refuse to let go um, of those things which are useless, you, in a sense, will be useless in the hands of God. And even in some sense, you've got to be careful, can put yourself under the condemnation of God. But he goes on. Principle two is God brings an end to the old so that he can start anew. It's just the way that God works. Another way you could say it is, you will no longer find me in the old temple, says Jesus. I, the Father, dwell now in a new temple. And this was a seismic shift of unfathomable proportions. In the spiritual realm, seriously, folks, this is like the, what we would see in the physical realm, like an Indonesian tsunami or the Haitian hurricane, or, or you could compare it to the Joplin, Missouri tornado, or you can think of it in the Devastating in the sense of its effects of an Ethiopian famine. It is the, the, the shift is so huge in the spiritual realm that it's changing things so greatly that this cosmic spiritual battle is going on. That Jesus goes to a cross and he dies for your sin and my sin. And he says, anybody who's open to that and understands that, that my life has paid for your life, so you don't have to someday. He says, just receive it. Well, here he is. He stands there. And he says, this shift is, is for mankind and it's significant. So verse 24, verses 1 through 2. Jesus, as he's leaving the temple, was walking away. And as he's walking away, his disciples, and I don't fault them because we're so much like this. It's so hard for us to grasp when God's moving in a new way. His disciples are walking away going, the house is desolate. But look at how, man, that's, that's beautiful. You know, the picture of the temple, let's put it up on the screen. The, the temple was this large plot of land that had all these courts around it with these walls. And, and what you have to understand is when you come into Minneapolis, it's a beautiful city, isn't it? But you see all these tall buildings. You see, in that day, this thing stood out. There weren't a bunch of tall buildings. All the other buildings around it were much smaller. So when people would approach the mount 
from which the Jerusalem was, was on, and they would see that mountain which the temple was on, people would look, and the people of the, the land, the, the family of the, the Jewish people would go, that's where God lives. And they were proud of this massive building. So as they're walking out, they're walking through the gates, and they're saying, you know, look at this, Jesus. This, this is just magnificent, isn't it? Just magnificent. And I love how Jesus throws this stuff out there, his next words. He, he says, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Take a look at that. All those bricks, every little stone you see, and some of them were massive. They were tons. They will all be pulled down. Not one left will be left. Because it's no longer useful in the hands of God. Guys, the temple is coming down, and in a generation, you will live to see it. And then Matthew 24, which we'll look at next week and go into a little bit, begins to share some of the signs. It uses apocryphal language, and we'll talk about that next week, or not next week, but two weeks from now. But you have to understand, this is the thing that grabbed my heart these last number of weeks as I've been just pouring my heart into this message and trying to really grasp it. You have to understand how incredibly subversive, revolutionary, and radical it was for Jesus to point to this temple and say it's all coming down. I mean, you think about it for a second. Can you imagine if you were to, if, if somehow it was your home, your family, you had God living in one of the places in your house and you could say to people, God lives there. This is the family of the Jewish nation. They are telling the whole nation, God lives there. And you come along and you start speaking against that, which that has been established for thousands of years. If you just go on in Matthew 26, Matthew makes it very clear. Just a few chapters later, as Jesus is, is, is flogged and he's brought before the Sanhedrin and he's, he's, he's being charged for his crucifixion. Listen to what it says. The chief priests in verse 59 And the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. They came forward with stuff, but none of it stuck. Listen to this. Finally, two came forward because you needed two and declared this fellow, this Jesus guy. This is what he said. I'm going to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That got their attention because you read on. Then the high priest stood up and said, I can't, you know, oh, did he really say that? I mean, he's shocked. Are you not going to answer, Rabbi? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? Jesus, they're silent. Doesn't say a thing. How can you deny what's true? This is a huge charge against Jesus, and it goes on, and they charge him for trying to proclaim to be Messiah. Now, catch this. As you go through, Jesus dies, he resurrects, the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, the church is birthed. They start telling people, some Pharisees, some chief priests start coming to the Lord. And we find that Stephen goes out and starts preaching. And look what it says in Acts chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Just before they stoned Stephen, listen to what they say. Verse 12, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. And they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. Catch this. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place. 
Isn't that interesting? Stephen himself, he got the message from Jesus. He understood that this temple had come to an end. Things, they had to let it go. This temple, and, he, and then he goes on, he says, and he also speaks against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. Oh, God forbid. That's the charge they take now, stones and stone him. That's how important it was, this temple and all the customs of Moses. But as we said, this principle hangs true. God brings to an end the old so he can start anew. And so Jesus and Stephen are crucified and stoned. Because they are saying the temple and its practices will become obsolete. You will no longer have to go and make a sacrifice every year for your sins. You will no longer have to abide by all these ceremonial laws. You will no longer have to do all these things with incense and all these different things. There's going to be priests who are going to be out of a job. There's a whole bunch of changes that are coming. Can you imagine how difficult it is for them? We pass by that so quickly. We think, oh yeah, now, but how come they didn't get it? And yet we are no different. It's really hard for us to let go of the old so the new can begin. Whatever it might be in our life or in a church. I mean, I've shared this before. You know how hard it is for me to let go of old shoes that I get. I can get brand new shoes that are exactly the same as the ones that I was wearing. And I still don't get rid of those old worn out shoes. I don't know if it's because I think if these don't fit well, I'm going to go back to them or what. Anybody have those kind of things? I, I'm sure you do. Yeah, I, you don't have to confess. Hands are going up all over. But isn't it hard to let go of the old when it's been useful and it has meant something to you and it's actually made an impact in your life? And can you imagine how difficult it is for these people? They had for 2,000 years been sacrificing animals. They had for 1,500 years from Moses had a tabernacle, a tent where God lived. And around that they had all the priests and all the paraphernalia and all the practices that went with it. And then for a 1,000 years, once Solomon built this beautiful temple and the temple was destroyed but built again and destroyed and built again. Again, this temple had lasted. It was the pride because this is where God lived. The focus of all of the life of Israel was here. It was where God lived in Jerusalem, in this city, in this place, in this town. How do you let go of something like that? I mean, some of you have a hard time sitting in a different seat when you come on Sunday mornings, right? And I understand that. There's a theology of place. There's a sense that, you know, God met me here a week ago or three weeks ago. And, it, and you get this sense of, boy, this is a, it feels good. It's comfortable. It's right. And that's not wrong until God says, guess what? You got to let it go. That's not how I'm going to work. That's not what I'm doing now. And as I looked at this, I, I just thought how easy it is to get cynical and proud. But I want you to think for a second. Here, the temple will no longer be needed. God's going to destroy it in 70 A.D. He gives a generation for this transition to take place because this is not like just getting rid of old shoes. This is getting rid of a whole way of relating to God. Isn't that amazing, his love? And so I just ask you in this, this idea when the new is coming, what are you struggling to give up? What is God allowing in your life to come to an end? It's been really good. It's been really useful. It's been something that was that was helpful. 
You know, I have to tell you, for some people, you grew up in families and, and there's so much dysfunction that you learned some strategies that were helpful to help you survive. But you find out when you're in your 20s and 30s, you get married, that same strategy you've been using, now you start using in your marriage or you're using with your kids and you start to realize it's not working any longer. Because God allows you sometimes things that are useful in order at a certain point to say, now let me move you into not this old strategy, however it might work, but this new strategy that lives by the Spirit of God. And you go, that, and that's scary. you got to be kidding me, God. I'm so used to planning and controlling and manipulating and making sure I get these things here so I can get what I want. And God's saying, it's not, it's, that's not, the Spirit won't be in that. I'm sorry. Think about it for a second. There are things in your life that God is saying, it's got to come to an end. There may be some relationships that you're in that, that God has said, you know what, it was useful, it's right, but it's not right now. There may be things that you're looking at in your life when you look at your relationship to God and God brought you to faith in him and you began to follow him and you began to know his love and forgiveness. But you got into a pattern, which is so easy to do, where you began to think if I could just try hard enough and I just measured up, then God pats me on the back and I do enough Bible study and I spend enough time in prayer and I do all these things I'm supposed to do. Then I'm going to be close to God. And God says, no, those things aren't the things that make you close to God. They just open up your heart so that I can move and work through you. And. And if I go to church and I do these things, but then you fail and you mess it up. And God says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to learn to walk in the work that I have done on the cross that you've been forgiven. And he says, I want you to begin to hear the Holy Spirit within you. I want you to walk in the freedom of not having to condemn yourself any longer. For some, it may mean as simple as this. It may be that you have to come to a place where you really get honest with, with, with something you're doing that you know is displeasing to God. And God's word speaks against it. And you're in a situation and, and in every way you know what it is, it's wrong. And God says that's got to come to an end. And this principle is just is simple. It's a spiritual principle. In fact... Jesus said about his own life prior to his death. He told his disciples in John chapter 20, 12, verses 23 and 25. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly. And this is really true. I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. So what do you need to die to in yourself? So that these many seeds can be produced. Anyone who loves their life and is so wanting to hold on to it will lose it. Anyone who hates their life or doesn't prefer their life over what God wants to do will keep it for eternal life. And then there's a third principle, which I really would love for you to think about. The new has come. God lives in you. God no longer lives in a brick and mortar building. God now, according to what Jesus says, here's what's so cool. Jesus says, you know, the way that I live is the way I want you to live. The way that God is housing himself in me is now a possibility for every person from this point, from my death and resurrection on. In fact, wait till the Holy Spirit comes, because when the Holy Spirit comes, guess what? You and you and you and you, if you open your heart to him, you're a temple of God. You are the temple of God. You have the opportunity to be used by God. Everywhere you go, every place you set your foot, you bring the presence of God. It's this incredible truth that, that, that Jesus comes and he says to the people, he says, I want you to recognize this thing. I want you to understand that you are now the temple of God. In fact, Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He says, don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you? Whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You were actually bought 
at a price. Therefore, with your body, honor God. Now, he's talking here about your physical body. I want to share with you just a couple of things quickly. One is about the construction of the temple and how the construction of the temple in that day mirrors the way the temple today is constructed. You see, the temple in that day had an outer court, had a holy place in the holy holies where the spirit of God, God himself lived. Do you know how our temple is constructed? It's really interesting. God's incredible in the way that he's able to kind of foretaste or give us a, a taste of what will be someday. He always is working towards what he fully wants to reveal. Do you know that our body is like that outer court? Our soul, which is made up of our emotions and our, our mind and all the collection of experiences and things we've had in our life, that's our soul is much like the holy place. And do you know that your spirit is like the holy of holies? And what God has said, that if you open your spirit and you begin to submit your spirit to his spirit, he will lead you by his spirit and dwell within you. And that's the holy of holies in which God dwells within you. So that he can free you in a whole new way to live, that you don't have to live with regard to your emotions ruling your life. One of the things you can do is you can begin to say with your spirit, like it says in the word of God, the heart is the wellspring of life. If you begin to realize your spirit and your heart is open to God and you begin to say, God, I want you to lead and direct me. And by my spirit with your spirit, we're going to combine together to know your word and to know the truth so that as I live in this truth, I will be able to say that's false. That's a lie. That's not true. And begin to regulate my emotions. Anybody tired? of the up and down life I lived that way for a long time but you want to tell you something when you begin to allow the word of God to regulate your spirit he begins to kind of even that out you begin to not have to be prey to the lies that maybe you have believed for so many years and then on the other side there are a lot of I'll go with men here often because there are a lot of men who live their life by the mind you don't live by the spirit you know a lot of Bible verses but when it comes to actually living in the way the Spirit of God would direct your life, your mind controls. You go, well, that's common sense, you know, and common sense is a good thing. But common sense didn't rule when it came for Noah's decision. It didn't rule when David stood before Goliath. You see, the only way you do the uncommon thing is when your spirit is open to the truth of God. Your mind sometimes is offended and objects, and God goes, that's okay because I'm bigger. I'm bringing you into something new you'd never experience. So someday I want to speak more on that. The other thing I want to share with you is not just about the construction of the temple, but I want to talk to you about the care of your temple. Huge thing for us today. Some of you, I mean, I want to kind of talk to you like this for a little bit, because, I, you know, this is one of these things when you talk about your body and how you care for your body. It can be really painful. It can be really painful because um, I recognize that um, physical health and, and, and the fact that our our whole world right now is caught up with this whole thing of obesity, right? I was looking at uh, Time magazine this past week, and they send me these top ten stories. They had a bunch of weird titles for some of them. The tenth story is this. Rick Warren's diet. Does God want you to be thin? This is... This is temple stuff. How do you care for your temple? Listen to what he says. With the U.S., this is in the article, with the U.S. tottering under an obesity epidemic that has left two-thirds of all adults and one-third of all kids overweight or obese, public health experts are despairing of finding new ways to get Americans off their duffs, away from the fridge and back into at least nominally healthy habits. Fad diets are useless. Gym memberships do nothing if you don't use them. Public service ads get ignored. But where are all those things have failed? Time says faith could succeed 
at least according to Pastor Rick Warren. Because two years ago, Warren, the author of the Uber bestseller, The Purpose Driven Life, was struck by how out of shape his 20,000 strong congregation had gotten. And he readily admitted that he was no better, tipping the scales at 295 pounds, a full 90 pounds too much for a six foot three frame. And he suspected he had a way to fix it all, one that might work in the wider world as well. And the secret he believed laid in Scripture in the book of Daniel. And their whole church has gone through this whole process of saying, our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. How will we care for it? And I think about it, folks, as believers. And I just I realize sometimes weight issues and things like that have much deeper hurts and pains that need to be forgiven. It's not just about what you eat. It's not just about your exercise. I realize that there's some ways that God needs to move into the heart and soul of a person for healing. But I just want to say it, it is important for us to take this message seriously. I think of baby boomers of my generation. There's a whole group of us that are moving into our later years. We, we are going to have a whole group that's going to be living through the 70s and 80 years of age. Do you know we have in a class that meets in the morning here that Paul Bergen teaches? There's some 37 or so of that group are over 85, no, 90, what is it again? 85 years of age, I believe it is. 85. And I just think about this from a very practical standpoint. What if the church got serious about the care of the body, the temple, and made a difference? It would make a difference in our, in our national savings. Well, we don't have that, do we? Okay, it would make a difference in our national pocketbook when it comes to health stuff these days. Now, that sounds really silly, but does the church have a responsibility with regard to the care of the body? And I just say that, and I just, as a pastor, I just want us all to be praying about what that looks like. And maybe we as a church need to come around then in a way that makes some sense. And lastly, I want to share with you the witness of the temple. It's not only the construction of the temple and the care of the temple, but here's the witness of the temple. You see, the temple then, this is what people would bring people, and they'd say, you've got to see our God. And they'd bring them to this brick-and-mortar building and say, this is where our God lives, this God, holy God. He's done these miraculous things, these wonderful things. But you always had to bring people there. It was unmovable. It was, it was this standing building. And now Jesus comes along and says something so radically different. He says, guess what? I am not going to live in these little temples of, of buildings like churches like this. I'm going to live in you as a group. I'm going to live in you individually. So that everywhere you go, you house God's spirit. Think about it. Every conversation you have, every meeting you attend, every sales call you make, every appointment you schedule, every classroom of kids you teach, every email you send, everything you do has an opportunity to actually carry the presence of God. And I just want to raise our awareness to that. Just think if we could think that way. Just think if we began to realize how significant our bodies are, that God resides in us. If we could get the understanding. This is the thing that was really Grabbing my heart, it, I felt like God was saying, Kevin, if the church, if this church could just get the seismic shift that has occurred, that it's not about in a building God lives, but He lives in each one of us. And when we come together, it's not about we're trying to get God here. It's about that God is here and we celebrate the fact that He's in us and we love Him because of that. And then we go out of here and we recognize that our life, your life, houses God Himself and can touch other people's lives. Just think if we lived out this awareness, if we prayed with this understanding, if we approached relationships with this reality, 
I'm going to ask you to bow your head and as a team comes to play here, this last number. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20. Paul says this, and this is true for you. This is your head bowed. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. It's come to you. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. He has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are there for Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. We are ambassadors for Jesus with an opportunity to live filled with his Holy Spirit. You are his holy temple.